0: Would you bow with me in prayer? Our gracious Father, we come today aware of our weaknesses, aware of our limitations, aware of our the challenge it is to try to explain who you are in your essence and in your marvelous, mysterious um, Personhood, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to open the eyes of our hearts, that we might uh, understand your word as it is written, but also that we might believe and that we might be confident and that we might, Lord, be aware of you as the true God, and therefore, Lord, we would surely be humbled by you and that we would also be transformed by you. And so we ask for help during these moments together as we look into your word. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Several years ago, in a poll uh, done by George Barna, four out of ten people responded by agreeing with the following statement. When Christians, Jews, Buddhists, and others pray to their God, all of these individuals are actually praying to the same God and simp- just simply using different names for that deity. So four out of 10 people said, "Yes, we believe that that's true, so that everybody's sort of praying to the same God. Mahat Gandhi sorry, Mahatma Gandhi of India once said this: "The soul of religion is one, but it is encased. In a multitude of forms. Now, a question I raised to us this morning in our thinking about God is this Is the God of Christianity the same as the deities of other religions? Do the adherents of all religions actually pray to the same God? Now, I don't know what your answer is to that question, but. My answer, as I understand the Scriptures, and I hope that you will join me by the end of this sermon, the answer would be no. And this, what we're coming to this morning in our series on the attributes of God, is an important uh, component of looking at the person of God, because we've been looking at the unique and unmatched attributes of the true and living God of the Bible. And this morning, we're looking at the critically important essential attribute of the God of Christianity, God is a triune God. We're talking about the Trinity. Now, I'm going to be the first person to admit to you that the Trinity is a challenging concept to understand and to try to seek to explain. So I'm way over my head here. I'm admitting that from the start. But as we shall see, if we deny the triune nature of the biblical God, We have therefore rejected the Christian faith. This is essential. This is a part of a foundation we all have to build upon if we're to be a Christ follower. To affirm the triune nature of God also is to deny the gods of Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and all other non-Christian religions. And so my approach this morning is to try to just very briefly, I'm going to take, uh, I'm just sampling some of the many, many texts. This could easily be a 12-hour sermon, so I'm going to condense it down. Uh, But we're going to look this morning at the first point. As we look at the nature of the triune God, we're going to give a brief overview of the doctrine of the Trinity. Try to explain why the Scriptures support such a view and explain what we're affirming. Secondly, we're going to look at just a very quick look at three different unbiblical views of the Trinity, and thirdly, we're going to look then at some brief overview of practical implications regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, not just make it something we, we carry around in our heads, but something that's worked out in our hearts and our lives. Let's first of all then look at the overview of the doctrine of the Trinity. The best place to begin is to point out that the Bible teaches the oneness of God, the oneness of God. Against the backdrop of widespread polytheism, the Old and the New Testaments affirm monotheism, that is, that there's only one God. It's interesting because you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the words of the Shema, which is very popular and oftentimes repeated among our Jewish neighbors and friends. It says this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is how many? One. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your might. It doesn't say you shall love the Lord's plural. He says you shall love the Lord. Uh, there are other verses that we could give to support that in the Old Testament. That's just a very clear example. But the same monotheistic concept of God is also found and affirmed in the New Testament as well. First Timothy chapter two verse five says, "There is one God, and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ." First Corinthians eight four says, "There is no God, but one." And so these truths continue to support the concept that goes against many trends within various religions in which they worship multiple gods. And clearly Christianity affirms again and again and again in Old Testament and New Testament, there's only one God. The true and living God is only one God. Now, having affirmed the oneness of God, interestingly enough, the Bible also affirms and teaches that the one God exists as three distinct persons. So one God, but he exists in three distinct persons. Now here's how my college professor put it years ago. Yes, I still have his notes on pages that I haven't lost in a computer somewhere, which I don't know what people are going to do with their notes someday when their computers crash, but I've still got my notes in a file cabinet. And this is what he said. There is only one true God who has been self-revealed as one in essence, but in this one essence, there are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal and co-equal. That's saying a mouthful. I don't have a full time to explain and unpack all that. But what he's summarizing is our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, some people are quick to point out, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold everything right there. You're using this term Trinity, but that word Trinity, is that ever found in the Bible? And the answer to that is what? No. The word Trinity is never found in any of our translations of the Bible. However, is the Trinitarian idea describing God as existing in three persons, is that idea of God found in the Bible? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. And the fact is, we've just used the term Trinity to describe what the Bible teaches because the word Trinity comes from a Latin word, Trinitas, which means three threeness, having three. Now, here's several examples of what I want to show you about the multiple persons within the Godhead. So follow along with me as we consider several of the proofs that support the idea of God existing in three persons. First of all, in the Old Testament, first verse of the Bible, first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the term that is translated God, interestingly enough, gives our first indication that there is a sense of multiple or some sort of plurality in the Godhead. Because the word used here for God is the word Elohim. Elohim. Anytime you hear im at the end of a Hebrew word, I am, it indicates it's a plural. And so what's interesting is that the term there, Elohim, is a masculine plural noun, God, But it's paired with a verb, create. In the beginning, God created. That verb is a masculine singular verb. So you have the word Elohim, which is plural, being matched with a singular verb, which indicates that that's the way the Hebrews conceived of and described God. There's the first of many examples of unity and plurality in the Godhead. Skip on down to Genesis 1.26. What do we come on to? We learn that God says, let us make man in our image. You further on in Genesis chapter 11, we have God responding to the attempts of all these people to build the Tower of Babel. And we read that He says, let us go down and confuse their language. And then God says in Isaiah 48, remarkable words, He says, listen to me, O Jacob, I am He, I am the first and the last, And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Another indicator of, again, plurality within the Godhead. Another interesting verse you might want to take time to find. This one, Proverbs 30, verse 4. You say, Proverbs 30, verse 4, indicating plurality within the Godhead? Yes. This is a text that's answering questions, or asking questions, actually. And Egar, the writer of these particular portion this portion of Proverbs, says this Who has wrapped the waters in his garments? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? Or his son's name? This is the Hebrew God? The God who is one? Yes, his son's name. And again, time limitations prevent me from continuing on in the full, fullness of what we could look at here in examining all the verses that mention the angel of the Lord is another whole course of study you could go into. The angel of the Lord oftentimes is identified and or functions as God, yet is distinct from God. And many scholars, and there's widespread agreement among this, that these references to the angel of the Lord are references to the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. Now, one more interesting Old Testament insight I want to give to you before we move on to the New Testament evidence, which is obviously much more extensive, is that going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, you still with me here? Deuteronomy 6, 4, that's where I started. The Lord your God is one, right? The word there for one, interestingly enough, is not a word that means a numerical, solitary oneness. It's a word that really has the concept that means something like united. Lord your God is united, and interestingly enough, the same word in Hebrew appears in Genesis chapter two, verse twenty-four, when it's described what marriage is to be like. It says the man shall leave his father and mother, two shall become one, two shall become one flesh, united flesh. Two people, one flesh. Interesting concept that again indicates even in the sense in the, even in the sense of saying one, there's a sense of united and idea of multiple, and in, 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 in unity. Well, Let's move to the New Testament here. Stay with me here. Okay? Everybody still with me? Okay. Nobody's saying anything, but I hope you are. Okay. New Testament. It was not until the fullness of time now. The fullness of time in terms of God's redemptive plan and His timing of things. Here at the fullness of time, we have Jesus Christ entering into the world. And the great plan of redemption unfolding with Christ's appearance. It's at this time that the teaching of the triune nature of God is most clearly and most explicitly taught and evidenced and revealed. It was not until Jesus was sent to provide in His incarnational ministry, to provide in His work of redemption, and then subsequently it is the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is sent to do His unique work that we begin to see the evidence of the Trinity is in its most clearest form. It's so obvious as we move forward in the progress of redemption. And so the New Testament writers do not hesitate at all to refer to the tri personality of God. You recall on the occasion when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River, Matthew chapter 3. At, on that occasion, we hear the Father's voice from heaven This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He also says um, that the Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove onto Jesus who was being baptized in the Jordan River. We also know, as you continue through the New Testament, that when Jesus commanded His followers at the end of Matthew's Gospel, right? Chapter 28, we've recently concluded that series, and I spent a number of weeks looking at that verse, Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus gave the command to baptize his followers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'll be with you always to the end of the age, right? Notice in the text there it says, you are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Not the names, but the name that is in the person of God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Interesting concept. Uh, recorded there in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. And then, of course, oftentimes we conclude our service here by using the benediction found in Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. The tri-personal benediction. May the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, the evidence is quite amazing. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Romans, chapter 1. Let me just show you another example. Romans 1, page 1338. In your Bible, Pew Bible. Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. The gospel of God, and then we're going to skip a little bit. The gospel about God concerning His Son, who was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see the clear Trinitarian teaching in that particular verse, those verses? It's obvious. The writers of the New Testament had no hesitation affirming there is only one God, but they also affirmed that He exists in three Persons. And what's important to understand also is that the New Testament writers, and I don't have time to fully unpack this as well, but I've listed it in your notes, is that you notice that each one of these persons is actually called explicitly God in the New Testament. So, for example, God the Father is called God in Romans 1.7, right there where it says, God our Father. And then we know in Jesus, in Titus 2.13, The text of Scripture says we're looking for the the coming and the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's called God. And He is God. And then the Spirit of God in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira, they said, Why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Why are you lying to God? Same thing, both used in parallel. Now, is the concept of the Trinity easily comprehended? Listen, folks, I'm just giving you the ABCs. It gets much more complicated. It gets very deep. It's way over my head. It's not easy to understand and comprehend. But the Scriptures are clear. God is one in essence, but He exists in three persons. And so I've given for you a quote in your your notes from J.I. Packer, who is very helpful here because he summarizes what we all probably feel at this moment. He says, Here we face the most dizzying and unfathomable truth of all, the truth of the Trinity. What should we make of it all? In itself, the divine triunity is a mystery, a transcendent fact which passes our understanding. Do I get an amen? Okay, get a couple of amens there. Okay, in itself, the divine triunity is a mystery. A transcendent fact, I'm sorry, I just read that, which passes all our understanding. How the one eternal God is eternally both singular and plural, how God, how Father, Son, and Spirit are personally distinct, yet essentially one, is more than we can know. And any attempt to explain it, to dispel the mystery by reasoning as distinct from confessing it from Scripture, is bound to falsify it. Here as elsewhere, our God is too big for His creatures' little minds. We can affirm that, right? That is a true statement. We're saying, wow, God, I don't fully fathom and understand how, how you, Your essence and what You're like is so different than what I'm like. Well, that's just it. We're creatures. He's God. Now I've thought about this long and hard as I've tried to think about explaining this. The mysterious doctrine of the Trinity it, it, to me is one more thing and I'm summarizing my first point here. We've affirmed it. We admit we don't fully understand it. But let me say this. I think this is another reason why we know for sure that the Bible is the unique and inspired Word of God. Who in the world could have invented all this stuff? Think about it. Nobody would have created or spoken of a God in this way. It is not a humanly inspired concept. This is a revelation of God, and no human author would ever have invented it. So we're affirming that God is three persons, that each person is fully God, and we're also affirming there's only one God. That's the Trinitarian teaching that we're affirming. Okay, now let's move forward here quickly. Point number two. There have been a number of unbiblical views regarding the Trinity. We don't have time to look at all of them. I'm just going to give you a couple samplings of how they have been distorted, show you how they still show up even today. During the first four centuries of church history, a number of the leaders within the church invested tremendous amount of effort and time and labor to defend the doctrine of the Trinity against those who were distorting and teaching erroneous views of the nature of God. And I want to take a moment or two to review several of these unbiblical views. Now, some have wrongly held that the Bible taught that there are three distinct gods. There is God who exists as Father. There's a God who exists as Son. And there's some who teach that there's God who exists as Spirit. There are three gods. Now, this teaching is called tritheism, three gods. It's not too surprising that some people would be convinced of that because, again, you've got to understand the background against which the, the Old Testament and New Testament were written. Look at 1 Corinthians, just for a second here, real quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, page 1362 in the Pew Bible. 1 Corinthians 8. It's just a little glimpse into these Roman cities where the church Jesus Christ had been established, and in the church... Church that's in Corinth, they've got all kinds of issues going on there. One of which is that the church is struggling with new believers, and how do they, as new believers who used to attend the local um, shrines and the local temples to the various gods of all, all these numerous Roman gods that were worshipped, how do we deal with the fact that now that we're a Christian, how do we go on with society? That, that, that has all these polytheistic gods and all these temples and offers food to those gods. And the food I'm going to buy down at the Stop and Shop in Corinth is food that's been offered to an idol. And so Paul says this. He just clarifies and summarizes some important points here. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. What he's saying is there's no reality these 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 idols. There's no no real God. There's only one God. Okay, so he affirms that. Verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through Him. You see how he's affirming the fact that, let's go back and affirm, we know there's only one true God. Now, there are people, though, who are convinced that, again, with all these polytheistic Romans uh, all around everywhere, they're insisting that there's nothing wrong with having multiple gods. Well, some people have said, well, there must be nothing wrong with affirming there's three gods. Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, clearly, as we've said, the Bible is monotheistic. It only teaches one God. But what we know here is that the Bible forbids polytheism, the worship of multiple gods, which means that the God of the Bible and the God of Mormon theology are incompatible. The God that Mormons worship is a multiple of God's. And they teach that if you're the right kind of Mormon, you yourself can achieve God's status. You can become divine. You can become a God yourself. Have your own little planet and multiply a huge race of people in your own little uh, uh, you know, God world, if you will. And so we're saying clearly we do not affirm that and we deny the God of Mormonism. Secondly, another battle that was raged by the early church was against a view called modalism. M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M, modalism. Modalism taught that there is only one God. That's good. We can affirm that. But that this one God only appears in three different modes. So they have the one God. He could show up one day as one, one mode, and then the next day he might show up in another mode. They sort of compared it to God being like an actor who plays different parts of a play, and he'll don different costumes throughout that play. And so modalists would suggest that God played the role of Father in the Old Testament, and then Jesus played the role in the Gospels of this one God, and then in the book of Acts and the rest of the epistles, it's the Spirit who that mode shows up, and that costume is worn by the one God. Now, of course, if you think about the evidence, it breaks down quite simply when you look at the incident of Jesus' baptism, at which time all three members of the Godhead were present and involved in that particular event. Now, the one modern-day denomination or movement that follows and holds to this kind of thinking, uh, if you will, of modalism, is a Pentecostal group called the Oneness Pentecostals, or they're called United Pentecostals. And they affirm, again, an unbiblical view of the Trinity saying that there is only one God and he just has different modes that he appears in at different times. And they deny, essentially, the statement that God is three persons. Now, thirdly, a third view that was condemned by the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, in the year of our Lord, was the view of Arianism. Arianism, uh, which is named after a guy named Arius. This view held that God the Father was eternal and that God the Father was the only one who existed and at some point He made, before everything else was made, He made the Son, S-O-N. He made Jesus. And He created Jesus. And then Jesus, as the greatest of all the creatures in all creation, He then made all creation, even making the Spirit of God, Jesus did. And so it's this kind of, of, of understanding... As they look at Jesus being subordinated to Christ, to to God in the incarnation, they believe that Jesus was permanently unequal to God the Father. This is, again, Arianism. And so they said Jesus is similar to God, but he's not the same as God in his nature. Boy, they battled over that one. And interestingly enough, it battled over one letter in two different Greek words. I won't go into all the details. Anyway, it was really something. So the Council of Nicaea affirmed this. That Jesus was truly God. Eternally truly God. And so they would say, Jesus was God of God, light of light. The very God of very God. Being of one substance. One substance with the Father. That is, He's exactly the same as the Father. He is eternal God He is not created and different from God the Father. And the Son is not less than the Father, and the Spirit is not less than the Son. All three persons are indeed God. Now, the God of the Scriptures exists simultaneously as three distinct and equal persons who are one in their divine nature or essence, who dwell in perfect equality and perfect unity. Now, you say, why are you even talking about this? Well, because the modern-day following of this kind of thinking shows up in the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they have followed Arianism in the sense that they would teach again there's only one God, it's Jehovah. And yet they would speak of Christ as if the one who was created first, and therefore they talk about him in that sense. They deny the eternal deity of Jesus Christ. And so anyone who denies the doctrine of the Trinity, I want to say again, As we have defined it here, they are outside the fold of Christianity. And that's why I've given you a little uh, chart, a diagram, whatever you want to call it, a little fuzzy thing. You can't hardly see it very well. I apologize. It's not as clear as I thought it would be. You'll see that the part part that's hard to read probably for you is in the circle. In the circle, you should see the word is not, is not, is not. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Okay, that's the circle part. You could write the word "is not" in there, and then the part that points to the Father and then points to the Son and points to the uh, triangle point of the Holy Spirit. That should say "is," so that the the Son is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God. Okay, that's just a little symbol they use or a little way of trying to uh, point out what we are affirming in the Trinitarian doctrine. All right, let's move forward here, and I don't want to. belabor some of these things it can be quite academic and uh, difficult to understand at times, I want us to have a brief overview of some practical implications. Are you ready? Okay. You weren't ready for that question either, were you? Are you ready? Okay. Let's talk about how, what difference does this make? What difference does this make? First of all, Trinity, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, is essential to salvation. It is essential to salvation. If you deny any part of what we've been affirming about the Trinity and the triune nature of God, you are left with everything falling apart with regard to the plan of salvation and the promise of salvation. The triune God has acted to save us. We who are created in His image, we who have been ruined by sin, We who remain in desperate need of being rescued by God, the triune God, it is God who has the power and the plan and the purpose to carry all these things out as the Father carries out His divine plan. And it's to be done in such a way that we find our joy and our confidence is in God, not in our achievements. And I say again, it is Jesus Christ who died as God and as man. As the sinless Son of God, He died so that we might receive and have a new spirit and that He might adopt us as His sons, that He might pay the penalty that we cannot pay on our own. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin, who empowers us and comes into our lives, giving us a new, a new uh, soul, as it were, bringing us to the new man, creating, recreating us on the inside. It is the Father who has planned our redemption. And one day He will raise us from the dead at which time we will receive a new body and will enter into the fullness of life with God. Again, modalism would deny these things. People who believe that Jesus is a created being have no promise that He was able to do all that the Scriptures affirm that Jesus did for us. He would have failed. He would be a mere mortal. He would be a creature. Our confidence is not in a creature who saves us. Our confidence is in the triune God who saves us. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. As a matter of fact, if you read the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1. Would you turn there just for a second? 1 Peter 1, page 1438. Let me just say again. It is idolatry to worship Jesus if he was a created being. And Jesus welcomed worship. He never told anyone to, to not worship him. Jesus indeed is God. And the Father has planned this redemption. And listen how Peter celebrates the triune God at his part in this, in this wonderful redemption plan of salvation. He says in verse 1 and 2, To those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of whom? God the Father. By the sanctifying work of whom? The Spirit. That you may obey whom? Jesus Christ. And be sprinkled by His blood. What a wonderful affirmation of how what? All three of the members of the Godhead, the three persons in the Godhead, we are re- relying on all three of those as one God working on our behalf, bringing about this wonderful redemption and salvation. Hebrews 9, verse 14. We read this. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to whom? To God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's a quote I came across, Fred Sanders, in a book that recently wrote about the Trinity. He says this, The gospel is Trinitarian. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity. It happens through the Trinity. And it brings us home to the Trinity. That's a great way of summarizing that if we deny the Trinity, we're left with nothing. We have no gospel, no salvation, no redemption. It's absolutely critical. And it does us. It bodes well for all of us to learn a little bit more about the Trinity so that we can understand why it's so significant and why it's so unique among the any of the religions of the world. It stands apart from all others. All right, second one I want to just quickly point out is that the doctrine of the Trinity provides us with rich insight into the relational aspect of God. And because God is a relational God, that gives us insight into who we are and what we've been designed to be like in bearing his image. Eternity, from all eternity, God has always existed and he's existed in fellowship with with Himself. That the love shared between the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Father, and the Spirit and the Son, and the Son and the Spirit, and the Father and the Spirit, all of this has been shared together for eternity in a wonderful, wonderful expression of love and of true oneness. You see, God is not a two-dimensional blob of infinite force. He is a personal God, and He has shown that He is a personal God in the interrelatedness within the Godhead. And that's why we can say God is love. Because he's, He loved eternally, even before He created creatures like you and me and showed His love to us. He was loving and was love even before that occurred. Now, if God did not exist as a trinity, there would be no love for him to share among himself. But listen to this, John 17, turn to your Bible, John 17, page 1286. Stay with me here, 1286 in your pew Bible. This is one of those prayers, the more you read it, the more you are just aware of how deep you're going into the mysteries of this relationship between the members of the Godhead as Jesus speaks to the Father in what is called His high priestly prayer. John 17, verses 24 through 26. He says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's affirming what I just said to you from all eternity. Then he says this, skips on down. I have made your name known to them, that is, my disciples, that the love wherewith you did love me may be in them and I in them. What's he saying? He's saying, I have a longing to see that the love that we shared from all eternity would be the same kind of love that now would be manifested to those that you call out to yourself, to those who are the redeemed, to those who are uh, the, the church, that that would be a love that spreads among them in ways that sort of, Echoes or, or, or mirrors the kind of love that we've enjoyed from all eternity. That's amazing. God has made us relational creatures. We are wired for relationship. And that's one of our biggest challenges, isn't it? Our relationships get so messed up and fall far short of the kind of perfect harmony that existed among the Godhead from all eternity. But God has made us for relationship for Himself with Himself. He's made us for relationship with other people. And I would say this to you, my friend. For that relationship to work is to mean that it does not mean we all have to be alike. The love that was shared among the members of the Godhead were among people who were not exactly the same. Father, Son, Spirit. They're different. All one God. And the church, according to the writers of the New Testament, It's amazing because it brings in the Jews and the Gentiles who hated each other all those years. It brings in people who were the slaves, who were a certain economic status in that society, and the people who are free, who are wealthy and well-educated, who have privileges. It brings them together and says we're all one in Christ. It brings women and men together. It brings the rich and the poor. It brings all different types of people together into the church made up of different people who what? Who share a common identity as those who are children of God, worshiping the same God, and therefore learning to love each other among diversity among us to bring glory and honor to the name of our triune God who existed in all eternity with love among, its, among the members of the Godhead. You say, I just wish it was easier for us to experience unity my friend, that's the thing that Christ is determined to do in His church. He's already built and established unity. We have to maintain it and live in accordance with it. Ephesians chapter 4. I don't have time to unpack all of that. I would also encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, all the differences among us, we all have differing gifts. The same God gave them to us. But he's designed us to be different. We're not all to be the same. And that's where we begin. We show forth to the world what God is like when people who are different have different gifts. They all work together toward a common goal. And we see a love among us that says, this is what God is like. There's hope, my friend. There's hope for the church. Why? Because of the triune God who made it and who will work in it such that hopefully someday, as I'm confident it will, someday it will reflect the greatness of our God in all eternity. So if you're struggling in a relationship, my friend, ponder the Trinity. If you're struggling to love somebody, ponder the Trinity. Ask yourself, what can I learn about God that will apply here in the situation I'm looking at in terms of loving people who are so hard to love are so different from me? I want to touch on one other thing here. This is going to be another probably touching the third rail. No, just kidding. Um, I don't know how people react to this, but the third element in which we could unpack some other practical applications among many others, but I'm just going to make this the last. The doctrine of the Trinity provides a model, a model for understanding and comprehending and seeing how submission works among equals. How does submission work among equals? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Don't have the page number, sorry. 1 Corinthians 11, 3. Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ, the Messiah, is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, this could be my second sermon I'm going to preach this morning. We could easily take a very long time unpacking that verse. But what he's saying here in the context of a head coverings, which was the essence of how do you express your appropriately, your femininity and your being a female in that culture, he speaks to that issue. We don't get into all the head covering issue, but anyway, in the context of explaining, he argues theology. And he goes off in explaining how the relationship between how Christ relates to the Father. He is equal to the Father, yet He subjected Himself. He submitted Himself to the plans of the Father. And He says, and Christ is to be head over the man, and the man is to be head over the woman. Now this, again, is highly offensive to many people in our culture today. I'm just telling you what the Scriptures teach and that's showing you that there is, within the Godhead, among members of the Godhead, there is Submission. Free mutual submission among them. That they mutually work together and defer to the other and say, I'm willing to put my plans aside. I'll do what you want me to do. It's beautiful, beautiful images of what Christ did in his self-humbling, Philippians chapter 2. Even though Jesus was equal in position, power, and glory to the Father, he submitted himself to the plan of the Father. They say, what does it have to do anything with life? Husbands? And wives are fellow joint heirs of the grace of life, 1 Peter 3. Yet as they are equal together before God as their status as children of God, the Scriptures teach that they're, they're assigned by God differing roles. That the role between the husband the role between the wife is different. They are not unequal. They are both equal both significant, both of equal value to God. And yet one assumes a role that's different than the other one. Not because one is somehow in doing such subordination is therefore to be denigrated. That's what feminists teach. That's not biblical Christianity. Feminists say if you subject yourself in some sort of subordination, that is to be denigrated. No, no. If you say that, then you've said that Jesus was denigrated when he chose to come take on human flesh Philippians chapter 2 and gave up all of his glory he was under denigration no no all i'm saying is that the husband has the role of being in loving leadership servant leadership within the home the wife is to subject be subject to her own husband as to the lord Ephesians 5 and therefore you see how equality and differentiation plays out in a human relationship which is mirroring how the, the, the playing out of equality and differentiation works out in the real relationships. It brings it down to the marriage relationship. And also in the church, where we're told that there are those in the church who are to be serving as elders and those are to subject themselves to the, to the elders. Does that mean they're not equal? No. It just means the roles that God has established within His church. Now, there's much more we can say about this, but let me just say this. For every troubled marriage regarding the lack of willingness to submit to one another, I would suggest you need to go right back to understand the, the basics of Trinitarian theology and look at Christ. Look at the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit says, Look, I don't want all the attention, I want the attention to go on Christ. John chapter 16. I want to point it up to Christ. That's the role I want to play. I don't want to draw the attention to myself. The Father comes up with the plans. The Christ executes the plan. It's amazing how well they work together. So the prayer for you and me ought to be this. Lord, give me a heart like you in being willing to lay down my agenda, to be willing to subject myself wherever you tell me to do that, fulfilling my particular role wherever you've assigned me in life, And that I might, what, show forth the greatness of who you are as my God, the triune God, and bring glory to your great name. We'd have a lot less problems in our marriages, a lot less problems in our churches, if people would live Trinitarian theology. I've said enough. Let's pray. Father, once again, we... We don't want to be arrogant here. We don't want to be foolish to think that somehow, Lord, we have a grasp on fully comprehending and understanding you. Lord, we live in mystery. And that's good because it humbles us. And I pray that we might be humbled today as we leave here, that we might be reminded we don't fully grasp and understand you. And I pray that, Lord, you would help us to lift our hearts in greater wonder and adoration to be blown away by you, our God, in the mysterious ways of being one God, but that you exist as three persons and that each person of the God is fully God. Lord, I pray that you would not just affirm these things and concur with it in our minds, but I pray that these truths would 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 somehow percolate down into our how we do church, how we live in community with people who are different than us, how to how to work through the the challenges of unity and expressing of love to people who are so different than we are, and Lord, I pray also for those in marriages that they every troubled and difficult marriage that's it's having a challenge with this idea of being unified and one, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us many insights into the equality of members in the Godhead, but willingness to be subjected to each other to accomplish the greater glory of your name. Lord, do these things, we pray. How we thank you for our salvation that is secured, that is planned, and that it is safe because of all that you have done, Father, Son, and Spirit. Work, we pray, in our hearts to bring us joy, not in ourselves or our performance, but in you and all that you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.